Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. In this 2019 town hall held in New Jersey, Convention of State's President Mark Meckler and endorser Pete Hegseth speak on the need to use Article 5. Well, we are really, really excited to have you all here today. We cannot wait to get this event started with Pete Hegseth from Fox News and Mark Meckler, President of Convention of States. Just so you know, later on in the program, we're going to have an opportunity for you all to ask questions. We have some cards that are up front here with some pens that we would like you to write down your question. Um, so if you have one, uh, some of our team members are going to be taking the cards and bringing them up and down the aisles. So just ask for one, and then you can write it down, and we'll bring it up to Pete and Mark so that this way they can answer your questions. For those of you who were not able to join us last November uh, when Mark came out to Ryder University, during my introductory remarks, I made a bold statement. I said that New Jersey will pass this Article 5 application. Nearly one year later, I believe even more strongly in that statement. And it's not because of anything that I've done. It's not because of what Pete and Mark are going to be talking about with you all shortly, although I know that they're going to bring the house down. The reason I believe that is because of the passion and the commitment displayed by the volunteers that make up the COS New Jersey team. In fact, right now, could I ask my volunteers to please stand to be recognized? And if you'll all join me in giving them a round of applause for the hard work that they put into this movement. The people that were just standing, the volunteers of this movement, they're your family, they're your friends, they're your neighbors, they're your countrymen. They believe steadfastly that the United States of America is a beacon of freedom for the entire world. And they believe that the United States right now is being threatened by an ever-growing federal government that seeks to tax, borrow, and spend us into oblivion. These people have had enough and they're taking a stand for liberty, the same stand that the Founding Fathers took nearly 245 years ago. A short time ago, I was asked if I thought this movement was worth my time, especially in our state. You see, New Jersey is a lost cause, and getting something through the state legislature is just too hard. After that conversation, I thought about that word hard. Do you know what's hard? Hard is declaring independence and then fighting a war for that independence against the most powerful army on the face of the earth. That's hard. Hard was storming the beaches of Normandy 75 years ago to fight the Nazis. Real Nazis. Hard was bringing the country back together after a bloody, gut-wrenching civil war. That is what's hard. What we're doing, taking that stand for liberty, it may be hard work, but it's also a lot of fun. It's fun because we're meeting new people, we're developing relationships, and we're turning this COS New Jersey team into our family. So later on this afternoon, 
after you've heard Mark and Pete, I implore you when you go home to go to conventionofstates.com, click on the Take Action tab that's located at the top of the homepage, sign up to be a volunteer, become a member of our family, and help us accomplish our goals here in New Jersey. Thank you. Now, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our first speaker. Um, this speaker I've, I've affectionately called the man, the myth, the legend. I've, I'm really creative with my nicknames. Um, I, I had initially asked to get Mark's bio so that this way I can read it, but it was suggested to me that I just speak from the heart. So if I were to say the Convention of States teams in each state are the grassroots army, then Mark Meckler is our General George S. Patton. He's resolute, he's fearless, he's courageous, and he will do whatever it takes to get this mission accomplished throughout our country. See, for Mark, he has pledged his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor to this cause. Because to Mark, those words at the end of the Declaration of Independence aren't just words, they're his oath. He abides by that. He is a true inspiration to me and to everyone within this movement. So if you'll all join me now in welcoming the Convention of States President, Mark Meckler. Completely impossible to live up to an introduction like that. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you know, coming into a room like this for me is just so inspiring. And I have a rare view, a rare look at America. Yeah, I got to look from the stage right now. By the way, you guys look really good today. I appreciate you being here. But I have a rare view of America, which is I get to travel all over the country. I've been in 47 states so far. I hope to make it 50 this year. But in the last two years, 47 states. And meet people like you everywhere I go. That's an incredibly important thing because I think we watch TV, we listen to the radio, we're on the internet, we're reading all the blogs, and things look pretty bleak in America if you do that. I know sometimes I do that stuff and then I just got to put my head down on my desk and cry, but I never end up crying because I'm immediately plugged back into you guys, into the grassroots. And I'm getting emails from you, and I'm on Slack. We have a, a technology we use called Slack where we communicate with each other. I'm looking at what you write, I'm looking at what you record, I'm on state team calls all over the country. And so I always, always, always have hope. A lot of hope, not a little hope, right? I don't see a dark future in America. I see a really bright future in America because of where I stand. Thanks, yeah, I, I think this is really important. Our job is to, we're supposed to be warriors. We're supposed to be out there fighting for the country, but I think we have to be happy warriors, not angry warriors, not sad warriors, not frustrated warriors. We have to be happy warriors and we have to know where we come from. So with your permission, I'm gonna do a little bit of history. Now you gotta forgive me. I grew up in Los Angeles, California. I went to public school there. My history might not be really that great. I've done a bunch of studying since though, so I think I might be okay. I wanna go back, I wanna take you all the way back we're gonna start at the American Revolution. We're gonna go back a little bit before that, but I wanna to speak to you about my favorite figure from the American Revolution. He was a captain in the American Revolution. He fought in the battle at Concord, the shot heard around the world. His name is Levi Preston. Now, you won't find much about Levi Preston on the internet. You can look him up. You'll find one story about Levi Preston. He was 
my mic here. He was not a great leader. He's not somebody who gave great speeches. He's not somebody who won some miraculous battle and so he rode in on his white horse and drew his sword. But we know about Levi Preston because, in my opinion, he was the quintessential Minuteman. He's the guy, in, in essence, the person, the ideology that made the American Revolution what it was. And the only reason we know about Levi Preston because in 1843, which is a long time after the American Revolution, there was a teacher. His name was Mellon Chamberlain. And Chamberlain was traveling around the country and he was collecting the stories of the last remaining Minutemen. I see Patty nodding because she's heard this story a hundred times, right? It's my favorite story from the Revolution. And by the way, I love this story so much, I have a great Dane named Levi Preston. That tells you how much I love this story. So Preston is there at Concord. Chamberlain runs into him in 1843. Captain Preston at this point is over 90 years old. I want you to think about that. We all know people 90 years old now, some of them sharp as attack. Back then, man, that's Methuselah old, right? Average life expectancy was 54, so if you're over 90, you've almost doubled that. And so he comes across Preston and he asks him a series of questions about why he fought in the American Revolution. And he thinks that he understands the cause of the American Revolution at the time. And he asks him, was it the Stamp Act? Were you frustrated by having to buy the stamps and put them on all your documents? It was just a hidden tax. It was very offensive. And Preston says, stamps? Never bought one of them. Governor Bernard locked them in the armory, and I'm sure that's the last I heard of it. I don't know. That's what I learned in Los Angeles, right? The Stamp Act. People were really mad about that. So he asks him, well, what about the tax on tea? Maybe you were mad about the tax on tea. He said, I was a farmer. We didn't drink any tea. The boys dumped it in the harbor, though. That was that. So it's not the Stamp Act, it's not the tea tax so what is it? So he goes much more broadly and asks him, are you, were you reading the great American revolutionaries? Were you reading uh, Milton and Burke? Were you reading Thomas Paine? And he says, those men you speak of, I've never heard those names. We read the Bible, the Almanac, Psalms, but those men never heard of them. So he wasn't reading the Great Revolution. These are all the things that I was taught in school were the very essence of the American Revolution. So he, now Chamberlain's really confused. He goes big. And he asked the question, well, maybe it was just the heavy hand of British tyranny. You were just tired of living under the boot of British tyranny. Captain Preston says, never felt a whit of it. So this is weird. We're in the heart of it right here, right, in New Jersey. I mean, this is where this stuff was taking place. And yet he's asking somebody who was there, a captain in the Continental Army, what were the causes? Why did you go out and why did you go fight? And I want to put it in context, by the way. Imagine if I were to say to you in this theater today, by the way, there's a battalion of Marines coming. They're going to be in the park in Dunnell, and I'd like you all to go home, get your own firearms, and we're going to fight them today. <laughs> That's crazy. That's what they were facing. The most well-organized, well-paid, well-trained, well-fed fighting force in all of human history, and these were farmers and merchants picking up their muskets to go fight these guys. So we put that in context, and you have to wonder why would they go out and fight him. When he asked them the question, Preston answers and gives us what I think is the most succinct and beautiful philosophical statement about the reasons for the American Revolution of any person ever, more than Washington, more than Adams, more than Madison, more than even the eloquent Patrick Henry himself. And he says this, when we went out to face them redcoats that day, we meant only one thing. We had always governed ourselves. We always intended to. Them redcoats, they intended that we shouldn't. That's it. That's it. That's the whole thing. 
you know, every time I tell that story and say that line, I get a tingle up my spine. And the reason is, you know, it's not like Chris Matthews and the tingle up the leg, it's up my, just saying. And the reason I get that is because it is so deep in our DNA, this idea of self-governance. Does anybody feel uncomfortable about the heavy hand of the federal government telling you what to do? Feel that way today? Yeah. Right? We're all sick and tired of it. We see them issue a new regulation. They tell you what your sheets are made out of, what the paint on your walls can be made out of, what kind of car you can drive, what kind of gas you can put in your car. Uh, and it's just outrageous from the time you go to sleep till the time you wake up and everything in between and all day long and on your way to work and at work and on your way home from work. The federal government and the state government are telling you what to do. The founders would have been stunned. They even tell us how much water our toilets can flush. Right? Now, I just want to say there's some lines that are too far for me. I built a new office not too long ago, a few years ago, back in California. I installed an illegal toilet. I'm a rebel. I'm a true rebel, for sure. Which means I think about the federal government every time I'm in the bathroom. It seems appropriate. So where did this come from, this idea of self-governance, this idea that we actually are meant to govern ourselves? I would argue, first of all, it comes from the Lord because we're endowed by certain, uh, in certain ways by our Creator, and one of them is the idea that we have free will, right? Anybody in here believe that we have free will endowed by our Creator? Yeah. Okay, so no government gave that to us. That's inside of you. So when people impose on that, when a government imposes on that, when the federal courts impose on that, you feel it. You feel it deep inside yourself because that's in your DNA. It's a very special thing. You know, I started to wonder where did that come from, this idea that we are self-governing people. And I, so I started to study American history. I went way back in American history. I looked before the American Revolution. I wanted to know where did it come from. You know, there's 158 years between the Mayflower Compact and the American Revolution. Most people don't know how long that is. It's five, five generations, 158 years between those two events. And during that time period, I would posit the argument that the reason that we are a self-governing people is because of that 158 years. Most important period in American history, we're here on this continent by ourselves without any overlords telling us what to do and how to govern, and we have to figure out how to govern ourselves. We are, in fact, at our essence, a self-governing people, aren't we? We are. That's what we are. And so that's where that comes from. Now I'm going to bring you all the way forward to modern American history because here we are today. Here's where we find ourselves today. The federal government overreaching, overbearing, burdensome, telling us what to do with our education, how to teach our kids, how to regulate our environment, what kind of car to drive, what kind of fuel to put in our car, what we can do, what products we can eat, what we can do with our own property, right? This is where we're at today. And so we feel a resistance to that. I feel a resistance to that. Do you guys feel a resistance to that? I'm sick and tired of that. So I ask myself, we should all be asking ourselves, what do we do about that? I know, let's elect the largest swing class in Congress since 1938. Let's say it was 2010 and maybe that happened and then everything would change, right? No, nothing changed. But if we only had the Senate, then everything would change, right? No, nothing changed. Well, maybe if we have the president, well, some things have changed, right? Twitter is a lot hotter these days. So here we find ourselves electing people, really important electing good people, fighting to put good people in office. Is that enough? No, it's not enough. And the reason it's not enough is because where we find ourselves today in American history, we don't have a personnel problem. We have a structure problem. We've 
broken the structure of federal governance. We had a beautifully designed, perfectly balanced system created by the founders to make sure that the branches balanced each other, the states balanced the federal government, and all these folks broke the system. Primarily, the Supreme Court broke the system, haven't they? So what do we do about it? Do we just say, oh, well, there's nothing we can do about it. We'll just keep voting. You know, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is insanity, right? And we're not insane. We might be a little crazy. We're Americans, but we're not insane. And so we have to do something about it. Thank God the founders gave us something to do. By the way, it's right in here. Amazingly, in the Constitution of the United States, right in here, it says in Article 5 that if we get frustrated with these guys in Washington, D.C., if they do the wrong stuff, if they break the structure, if they blow up the system, we use Article 5, we call a convention, we get the states together, and we propose amendments to restrain the federal government. How's that sound? Yeah, that's what we're doing. That's the historical context that you need. I want to show you something else because some people, I'll hear this all the time, we'll have questions about this. Mark, this document is beautiful. It's as close to perfect as humans have ever created. Why do we need to do something with this document? Why do we need to do something with our Constitution? Isn't it too much of a risk to open the Constitution? And my question when people say that to me is, well, which Constitution are you talking about? And people look at me, they're confused when I ask that question. Which constitution are you talking about? And I ask, well, are you talking about this constitution? Oh, are you talking about this constitution? Now, a lot of people look at me, oh, that's not the constitution. Well, it's really interesting. I bought this from the government, from the federal government. It says on the spine, Constitution of the United States of America. They think this is the constitution. 2,738 pages over 10 pounds, with the supplements, it's over 3,000 pages. This is the Constitution under which you live. And the question is, which one do we want to live under? Do we want to live under the original one, or do we want to live under that one? I think I know the answer. We want to live under something closer to that original Constitution with those beautiful 10 Bill of, Bill of Rights attached to it. Isn't that what you guys want? Yes. Now, the people in Washington, D.C., a lot of people out there in the country, They'll tell you, that's too hard. Uh, Jonathan said it. That's too hard. We, we can't get that back. There's no way. There's no chance. There's no how. Thank God the men and women and the families that fought the American Revolution weren't that weak and pathetic. Thank God the guys on the beach at D-Day weren't that pathetic. Thank God the men and women that dragged themselves and us and our families through the Depression weren't that pathetic, right? Thank God all the men and women that have served this country in uniform here and overseas over the decades and over the centuries weren't that pathetic. And we're not that pathetic either. Because the bottom line is it's not that hard. It takes 34 states to call a convention. Do you guys think we can get 34 states to call a convention? I do too. You know, six years ago that was just a theory. Today, 15 states have already called for a convention. A whole bunch more have done so in one house or the other. Both houses have to call. They need a joint resolution. They don't need a governor's signature. We don't need no stinking governors, do we? <laughs> nah. Just the people in the legislature. Today, 15 states. We, I think we have two or three more we're going to get this year. Michigan still pending. Pennsylvania still pending. You guys, nobody else knows this in Ohio. We're going to file next week. So Ohio will still be pending. So 17 or 18 states this year, maybe. Next year, I think there's 10 or 12 more on tap. We, me, my wife Patty, Jonathan, the leadership team, you guys here, what we're going to do is we're going to do nothing less than we're going to hold another American Revolution, only this time it's going to be peaceful. Are you guys with me? We're going to get that done. It's going to take all of us to get it done. Right now, about 4 million people involved in this movement across the country. 
I'm really honored just to have been one of the first. No difference between me and you. We got a different job, a different role to play in the revolution. Everybody's necessary in the revolution. You and at least 10 of your friends are necessary if we're going to conduct this revolution. We also need people who have a bigger platform than somebody like me, or maybe a bigger platform than you. You know, we need folks like, anybody here of a guy by the name of Mark Levin? Yeah. <laughs> what a man. We need folks like Mark and Sean Hannity and Ben Shapiro and all these guys that are willing to stand up and speak up and show up for us. Really important that people with a platform, people with influence are willing to use that to save the nation. And I've been really blessed to have somebody else step up. And I'm going to bring him up here, but I've got to tell you a story about how I came to know him first. So, so this gentleman wrote to Convention of States to check us out, right? And he wrote to Convention of States by writing to the info at account. So we've got just like pretty much every organization, we have an info at Convention of States. Now, in a lot of organizations, nobody even looks at those emails. It's kind of a way for people to vent and they dump them, they just basically go into the round file. We have a volunteer who you guys should know and love, her name's Cindy Nation. She looks at every single one of those. She answers most of them. She sends them to me if she thinks it's appropriate or somebody else in the organization. And she gets this one and she emails me and she says, Mark, I got this email from this guy and it says, Pete Hegseth at Fox and Friends. I think it's Pete Hegseth. <laughs> Seems really weird. Right? And it is weird because Pete could uh, write to me personally. He could, um, we know a lot of people in common. I know Neil Cavuto and other people at Fox. He could have asked around. And so I asked Pete, well, after we met, why didn't you do, like, just reach out to me? And he said, because I wanted to know who you guys really were. And he has run nonprofits in the past, and he understands mostly those things go into the trash. And he said, it, tell, it would tell me a lot about who you are by how you deal with your info ad account. And the idea that you have somebody actually reading those and actually passing them on to you and you contacted me because I wrote to you there says something about the heart of this organization. And so I also think that says something to you about the heart of a man by the name of Pete Hegseth, that that mattered to him. It wasn't were we prominent, were we influential, you know, could he reach out from, you know, as a famous person and get attention. He didn't care about any of that. He wanted to know your heart before he decided to get involved and we are incredibly blessed that he has decided to get involved. If you were up early today, you probably saw him on Fox and Friends this morning. I did. It is an honor and pleasure to introduce my very good friend, Pete Hegseth, New Jersey native. way better than sitting at a couch and staring at a camera. You know they outsourced those cameramen a long time ago. We just stare at robots and we imagine you out there. Uh, and we see you, by the way. Thank you. By the way, I want to be Mark Meckler when I grow up. I'm actually not kidding. I love this guy and what you need to know about this movement and this organization is that their heart is in the right place, right here. They love God, they love country, they're putting their, their blood, sweat, and tears on the line every single day going across the country, meeting with groups. I live in New Jersey now. New Jersey's not lost, is it? No way. No way. Because, you know, a lot of groups would say, well, we've got 12 priority states. We only go to those states because that's where we think we can get it done. And the faith of this movement and this organization is that there are freedom-minded, liberty-loving patriots in every single state in this republic, including New Jersey, and I love it. 
I mean, this, this truly is the front lines of freedom. You guys are on the front lines of freedom in the free world. Because there's three basic things I talk about all the time, and I want to lead with them today. One, that history is not over. I mean, we're, we're, we're a stone's throw from history in this great country. Battle of Trenton, Battle of Princeton, battles in this state of New Jersey that I, I see some kids here today. I know we got a lot of parents here today that will bring their kids to those battlefields. I can't wait to do the same thing. Our, our forefathers knew that history wasn't over. I'm going to take a quick pause because I talk about our forefathers and what makes America so special. A hundred years ago, the Hegseths, or maybe 140 years ago, the Hegseths were in a small fishing village in Norway. They were not Americans. They were, they were nobodies in a small fishing village in Norway, and then they made the trek. They came across legally. They settled themselves in southern Minnesota. They farmed, they farmed, they farmed, and then they were a school teacher, and now I have an opportunity to serve this country and have an amazing platform that I'm grateful to God for. But I share the heritage of all of our forefathers because America is not about what your last name is or where you're from or how prominent your family is. It's about an idea, and, and Mark, you talked about it beautifully up here, a shared belief that our rights are endowed by a creator, not by government and we will represent ourselves, and we thirst for freedom. Therefore, as a result, because I share those same values of our forefathers and our founders, I am an American just as much as you are, as any, anyone who was there in that revolution. So when I talk about our heritage, that's precisely what it is, and that's not the way it is in countries around the world. And many of you have been to them. I've been to them. You see that it is about the soil, or it is about my family, or it is about the government. It is about that nation. This is special. It is a crown jewel in the world. But what we have to understand is that history is not over. We don't get to hit pause. I don't need to tell that to this group, so I won't belabor it. But it's our job to remind everyone else outside of here that just because America is the strongest, the most powerful, the most prosperous today, culturally influential in the world today, does not mean it will be that way tomorrow. Tell that to the Romans. Tell that to the Brits. Tell that to any other empire that existed that thought it was inevitable that they would be on top of the, of the uh, heap of history. History is not over. The second is that America is not inevitable. There's nothing about this 245th year of our great republic that says that we get a 246th or a 250th or a 270th. The average lifespan of republics, if you study history, is about 225 to 275 years. That's healthy republics. So we could be in our aging years because ultimately they turn on themselves, they get decadent, they get lazy. Invading armies are usually not the challenge. In plenty of history, there have been invading armies that have taken away freedoms of people. It's usually the invading uh, intrusions, the death by a thousand cuts of regulators, of local officials, of our own complacencies, where we step back and say, it's going to be okay, or it, it's not gonna, it doesn't have to be me, or I saw the school board impose that, or the curriculum is saying this now, but I don't want to speak up. It's all of those very moments that we lose the values we share and the freedoms that we cherish. And I know we can all think about that. I've got some kids in private school, some kids in public school, and I, know, I, I think every day, am I being vigilant enough about what I see coming home in their backpack, or what I hear from the school, or what they're promoting, or the rallies, or the assemblies that they're talking about. I mean, Earth Day is like a religion. I'm serious, you know that. When's the last time we talked about Veterans Day or Constitution Day or Patriots Day? 
all of these things in our schools and revered them at the level that we ought. I mean, this is, this is 20 years ago when my brother was in high school in Forest Lake, Minnesota. And this is a conservative community that I grew up in. Love vets, love the flag, love all of it. And I remember finding out that for Earth Day, they showed Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth in every single classroom. And we laugh, but it's true. And this is a wonderful, God-fearing, patriotic community. And you think it's gotten better since then? Most of us, I mean, I ask the question, do we know whether or not you say the Pledge of Allegiance in your kid's school or your grandkid's school? Do you know if you say it, or if they say it? Do you know if they say it every day, once a week, even at assemblies? Most people don't know because we're not paying attention. And then right underneath our nose, the civic rituals and the things that have held us together just get poof, wished away, poof. You may have seen on Fox and Friends, Spring Lake Park, Minnesota, City Council decides to say, we're done saying the Pledge of Allegiance. They were hoping nobody would pay attention to that. If one small reporter had not noticed that, it would have happened underneath the nose of that community. Now, thankfully, this pesky little morning show called Fox and Friends found out about it. <laughs> we told the whole world about it, and then the president tweeted about it. But the question is, are you paying enough attention to see that and to elevate that and to fight that? And it's those 1,000 cuts that erode our republic by the way, we're, you guys know we're a republic. The left like to call us a democracy. We know what we are. <laughs> Again, small things like that that we have to reinforce because they really, really matter. America is not inevitable. History's not over. America is not inevitable. The third thing is, is that if the 21st century, this century that we live in right now is not, a, is not an American-led century, it will not be a free century. It will not be a free century. Who's it going to be, the communist Chinese? The ambitious communist Chinese? Who's it going to be, the Russians? How about the Islamists? How about the bureaucrats in Brussels in Europe? They really got it all figured out, don't they? I mean, I mean God bless, uh, I, I couldn't have been more proud. Next to Election Day 2016, Brexit Day was one of the proudest days I've seen. People sovereignly standing up. Maybe Boris can get it done, but they can't even get that done right now because of their entanglements with unelected bureaucrats who now control their lives. Oh, by the way, they've mortgaged their future by raising taxes to pay for their welfare state, and then they gut their militaries and open their borders and don't demand allegiance and assimilation, and then they wonder where their country went. I mean, Europe is a museum. And what's the army of Europe today? It's called the 101st Airborne. All right? And the 82nd, and the Marines, and everybody out there that's done their part. They are peaceful and secure today because America is strong. And the problem is, is if we forget that, and I'm not talking about military budgets and size of government, I'm talking about an ethos and a reality that we still live in, in, in a world of power struggles, where free people, it's not enough to be free, you have to be able to defend that freedom, secure that freedom. Tell Beto O'Rourke where to put that freedom. <laughs> I was properly corrected. It is Robert Francis. I should never call him Beto. I apologize. Uh, so ultimately, it is our responsibility to keep our country free, prosperous, and powerful. Because the minute we let our guard down, Freedom will be on re in retreat because there's nobody else out there. 
There's nowhere else to sail to. There isn't. So if we don't, if we don't instigate, fulfill, be a part of this next American revolution without the bullets, there's nobody else there. And it's always the one or two or three percent of active citizens who understand enough to be on that bridge, in that town square, willing to stand up, put their boots on the ground, and say, I will fight for my very freedom. And I'll tell you, this, this, is, this organization is my A number one. A number one. I don't take a dime. And I am quite confident of the fact, because of Mark's leadership, because of the leadership, the integrity of this organization, that if it doesn't happen this year, and it doesn't happen next year, or the year out, it's going to happen. And when that convention happens, the world will pay attention. They may not be covering it now, but you wait until there are 31 states, 32 states, 33 states. Then we're going to be hosting Fox and Friends from the New Jersey State Assembly. Okay? I'd love that. It'd be a shorter commute for me. But that, that is what we have to do. That's what's required of our moment. And I think, I've said this to Mark, we've talked about it. I think one of the biggest challenges of our movement right now is that a lot of people took a deep breath on election night of 2016 and said, okay, our republic has been saved for now. We've got a fighter with a big old shield and a sword called a Twitter account <laughs> on our behalf willing to fight for us. And what has been so beautiful to see about this organization and about activists across the country is that they haven't stopped or taken it for granted. Because there's a lot, as you know, there's a lot of misinformation about Article 5 in Convention of States. And it's intended to undermine the movement because they're threatened by it. But every time you sit down and meet with a legislator or meet with a fellow patriot or your neighbor and tell them about it, it matters. Because it all leads up to the point where you can put pressure on those state reps to do the right thing. They got elected for a reason. Well, don't, let, don't get me into the motivations of why people run for office. But most of them ultimately love their country, but never thought that they could stand at a moment in history where their vote ultimately and the state legislature is a part of saving America. And that's the beautiful opportunity that we all have as a part of this movement. Lobby your state rep, get to know the people involved in your community so that as states, collectively, we can take back our federal government, which is absolutely out of control. That's the moment that we have. And I, I'll tell you, I, I emailed the info account because I went to event after event after event. In, uh, I once ran for office in 2012. Not only did I lose, but I lost to the biggest loser in Minnesota statewide history. So I, well, it's one of the best things that ever happened to me. Uh, and I wouldn't have been a good representative, by the way, because I, I hadn't had a full education in the depth of the liberty movement and freedom and, and the stakes of what we're up against right now. But part of the reason I learned about Convention of States, because at every event I went to, someone with a, a COS button or a lapel pin came up to me. And they said, do you know about this? Have you heard about it? Have you studied Article 5? And at first I was like, okay, okay, okay. And you probably get that a lot. But then when you ultimately spend enough time and someone reinforces with you, and then you watch our news, and you watch the left today, and what they're doing to our country, and then you realize what they've done, what the Tea Party movie, movement, which is wonderful, still that class of representatives that was supposed to change the whole conversation. Or you look at our, our, our great president today and what he's trying to fight in the swamp, and you see what he's still up against, and what they try to do to him, you realize there's gotta be something there. 
thank God that our founders gave us the gift of Article 5. The gift of the people to take the power back. So I, I'm here to say thank you to you, to let you know that we have your back. I'm doing everything I can in that one square block of sanity in Manhattan called the Fox News Channel. Everything I can to bring the voice of the people to the front of the conversation. Because that's ultimately what this American experiment has always been about. So thank you for what you're doing. God bless Mark and Convention of States, and I think we're going to take some questions. Thank you. Okay, Jonathan, do we have cards that have, have questions on them somewhere? We're going to take some questions, but uh, before that happens, what we'll do. So Pete, there's a, <laughs> I was watching you this morning. And amazingly, pizza came up again on the show. <laughs> I was actually a little horrified to see that conversation start. Yes. And uh, you had breakfast pizza this morning. Breakfast pizza, yeah, yes. We good. avoided the whole hand-washing thing. Yes, exactly. Yes. So, but I do, I know you told this story at the summit, so, and a bunch of these people weren't here, didn't hear it. I'd yeah. like you to tell the famous uh, Fox and Friends pizza story. The pizza story? Okay. So, the, if, in case you didn't know, there's an entire cottage industry out there that exists to get me fired. And people like me fired. Okay, they, all they do is watch Fox, and they watch Fox and Friends, and then they tweet about it or write articles about it to try to make you look bad. And the goal, what the left always does, is to target you, impugn you, discredit you, and then get you fired and then make you irrelevant. That's Saul Linsky, they, they've written it all down. We know what they do. In this case, they'll take anything. All right, so you know Fox and Friends, we do a lot of serious topics, but we have fun too, it's a morning show. So on Saturday, we had Pizza Hut Pizza, which is my favorite pizza, by the way. Uh, deep dush, deep, deep pan pizza, pepperoni, can't beat it. Anyway, I mean, I know I'm in New Jersey, like you the land of Italian yeah, pizza. You, you gotta be a little like, bit I get it, I get it. I know where I live now. And I love the pizza here too, but I'm a Minnesota boy and it's really greasy good pizza. Anyway, so, and I'm, I'm actually looking for a sponsorship too, so Pizza Hut if you're out there. <laughs> but I, so we had Pizza Hut pizza, I took a bite of it, it was great. And then I put it back in the box and I slid it under the couch. Well, there's no one in our studio between Saturday and Sunday. So the next morning I come in and there's Pizza Hut pizza. And who doesn't like day old pizza? So at one point in like the seven o'clock hour, I kind of look under the, the couch, it's still there. You know, I pull it out, grab it, take a bite. I'm like, man, this is really good. And Jedediah, who is uh, more attuned to the threat of germs than I am, uh, made a bit of a crack about it, and I said, what do you mean? I said, oh, this is fine. I said, I haven't washed my hands in 10 years. <laughs> I said, I'm not worried about it. I can't see germs. If, if you can't see them, they're not real, okay? <laughs> I've inoculated myself. I'm good to go. I never get sick. So you make this crack in the morning. Uh, 24 hours later, it was the number one globally trending topic on Facebook. <laughs> Fox News host hasn't washed hands for 10 years, does not believe in germs. And, and the seminal moment was when, we'll leave names out of it, people wanted me to put out a statement that said that germs are real. And I said, I refuse. Uh, call my junior high science teacher. He'll tell you. So it's, it's a fun story, but it tells you what a microscope people in the media can be under, even if you're having fun. And as you, there's, 
as you can tell, there's a lot of humorless people in our media today, unfortunately. And for all the wonderful things of our president, he's also a great comedian who knows how to use comedy and jest to point out the ridiculousness of the left. So Yeah, so now you can tell why I was a little worried when I saw him eating pizza on air today. <laughs> pizza gate of a new kind. Look out. Yeah. Uh, so you got involved in convention states. You've, you've traveled all over for us. Why do you do that? I mean, that's a pretty radical thing. I know you got a big family. You just got If you don't know, Pete just got married. Really awesome. <laughs> Blended family, seven kids, real little one at home. But you're willing to travel for us. I think that's a big sacrifice. Why do you do that? Because to me, it's the absolute least I can do. I wish I could do more. And I've told that to you. I mean, I get paid to give speeches across the country all the time. I love it. I got to pay the bills and <laughs> colleges down the line. I can't even think about it. But for me, this is, a, is it's an absolute passion of the heart. And I, I do think about um, everything, you know, our, our founders pledged their, their life, what was it, sacred life's honor? Fortune. Life's fortune and sacred honor. And the least I can do is give of my time to talk to the best of America, to mobilize a movement I think can save the country. Because I just look out and I, I've been through, I think, probably the same progression many of you have been through. I went through the same compression in 2016. I was a Rubio guy and I was a Cruz guy and then I didn't understand Trump and then I had my conversion moments and now I understand what we're up against and what it all means. And I think once you've, once you've looked at where our country is and what it's up against, you realize the tools in front of us in Washington DC are not gonna get it done. They're just not. And so if you're, if you're content yelling at the TV or playing the small ball politics that we've always played, then we're gonna stay right where we're at or you gotta look for something bigger and bolder in our constitution that was given to us. And I'll tell you, I mean this, watching Mark and his crew operate, we were in, uh, uh, where were we, Williamsburg? Colonial Williamsburg. Colonial Williamsburg with the whole movement and organization. They got it right, they're doing it right. They're building for the long term. Uh, so I'm humbled just to be a small part of it and wish I could do more. Uh, so I hope this motivates folks to get even more involved today. So there's a question we get all the time, and it's when I started as an activist, you know this because uh, you were with Concerned Vets and you wanted to get media for the things you're doing. I get this question all the time. Well, how come we don't see Fox and Friends or Fox generally covering convention estates all the time? I'm working on it. <laughs> I don't have much power. I told him if we get more time on there, I'll double his pay, which is zero. <laughs> so I'm very generous that way. Uh, it's a great question. and and the. The, the, the reason is is because we cover news of the day. And ultimately, while we have a, I have a view of the world, of what I think is important, uh, ultimately the channel follow, I mean, ratings are king and very important and most important. So we're gonna find ways to weave in things that matter most. In fact, I hope we do a segment tomorrow, which we might. But I'll tell you this, like I alluded to in my speech, if we get to the point where it's 29 or 30 or 31 or 32 states, which I believe it will, then we get to have the national conversation that is being ignored right now. Because they were, I mean, Fox is pretty much, the, and talk radio, is the only hope by which this movement gets exposure. Everyone else will ignore you and us until the very last minute. Now who's not ignoring us? The left. And I don't know if Mark, you talked about it or not, or, or Jonathan did, but the, the amount, all, every single group you can think of on the left is signed on to a letter that says that Convention of States is the most evil thing that our country could ever do, which means we're right on target. Yeah. All right? And, 
And one of the most, in addition to crushing political correctness, one of the best things this president has done is totally exposed the fake news media for being completely in bed with the left. So why would we expect they would give any promotion to this other than to demonize it completely? But I'll tell you, building this under the radar is probably better for now. And then when that moment comes, we get to have the conversation and educu educate people about Article 5 and Convention of States. And by then, it's too late. And then mobilize this movement to put pressure on the squishy folks in state legislatures who want to do the right thing but need the courage to do it. And that's when you come behind them. So we're working on the media, uh, but you know, maybe someday I'll have a show where I can control it, but I don't. <laughs> Well, all of these guys can write in and ask for more. You peace. should. <laughs> Friends at foxnews.com. There you go. Uh, so I want to backfill something you said real briefly. Pete talked about all these organizations that signed on to a press release against us. And this is an important tool for you guys to know. You're going to have conservative friends. They're going to say, oh, this seems crazy, and why should I support this? Go to the website. Go to conventionofstates.com. Do a search for 230-230-ORGS, and you'll pull up a document what you're going to see is every radical leftist, Marxist, progressive, baby-killing, communist organization in the nation, literally, Planned Parenthood, AFL-CIO, uh, the SEIU, the AFSME, uh, La Raza, MoveOn.org, Daily Cause, all signed a press release saying this is the worst thing that could possibly happen in this country. You know, the left's pretty dishonest. Anybody think the left's dishonest in this country? They said something entirely truthful in, in that press release. They said, these people intend to reverse 115 years of progressivism. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? You got one thing right. Yeah. And by the way, Hillary Clinton herself has spoken out of Convention of States, against Convention of States. So my attitude is, you know, when I see a list like that, I almost don't need to know what it's about. I'm like, oh, all those people are against it? I'm in. What is it? <laughs> Okay, so here's a question for you, Pete. It says, what is something the military taught you that you wish all men learned at a young age? Oh, boy. Um, for, I mean, a, a ton of things. I mean, I think the, the fight or flight instinct is a really powerful thing uh, that when you grow up, and I grew up not in a military family. We were, you know, we're, we're nice in Minnesota. Oh, yeah, you betcha. <laughs> you know, all these nice Lutherans. Can't we all just get along? Uh, and so that was not ingrained in me. I played sports and all that, but, but fighting through the threshold of resistance, of that moment when there's tension, and when your option is to pull back and be quiet or to push through it, is a really hard thing to do. I mean, it's one thing when the, when the bullets are flying at you, the first time you're shot at, you say, whoa, is someone shooting at me? And then you realize that's what you were sent there to do, and you push through, and your training allows you to do that. I think it's the same thing in a civic context. I really do. The first time you're called a name, or someone says, well, you're a racist, or you're this, or you're that, I mean, most people are never confronted with that outside of like their brother, right? But when some stranger you don't even know, or your neighbor who you respect, or somebody on the city council is imputing your motives, it's easy to step back. And I think learning to push through that, and civilly and respectfully the way we do it, unlike the left, forcefully advance your argument because we're right. Like what we're defending right now are the basics, the flag, borders, capitalism, freedom. Like, it's not hard to defend God. Uh, th these things are, are, are the types of things we all know how to defend. You have to push through that resistance. The second thing is, is, I think, how to organize. And that's why there's so many vets involved in Convention of States, is because I, I ran two vets groups, and I'm quite proud of what we accomplished. And I never ran a business, never ran a nonprofit before, but I had learned how to create operations orders and organize men in combat and plan for operations. And I just applied that to organizations. 
And that kind, you just build a plan and work a plan. And that's what I love about what Mark's doing here. He built a plan and work in the plan. Every single day, it's going to be progress, it's going to be steps back, but when you build it and work it, uh, that's when you have a fighting chance. So I would say push through it, and then uh, if you know a vet, get them involved, because they've got the skills to, to inherently add value to this movement. Yeah, and Pete, we refer to what you just described as act, learn, adjust. So we're always in action, and I know you guys do this in the military, after action reports, right? Yes. You, because you've got to figure out what happened, what you learned from it, and then you adjust for the next time. Absolutely. And so as an organization, we're always doing that. I think this is really important that you learn this even in-state, in your leadership teams in-state. Like, we're going to make mistakes. We're in battle. You know, Richard Marchenko, he writes Rogue Warrior books. He's, a, he's the guy that invented the SEALs, and he writes business books. And he said that when they started fighting special ops, SEAL team stuff, they would have an A plan, a B plan, and the O plan. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and he said it was always the third one that ended up happening. Yeah, right? it usually is. Because you just can't tell. There's too many variables. And this is true in politics as well. When we go into a legislature, we got a plan. we got a B plan. And usually we end up on the, hey, it's flying, and we don't know what to do plan. And the way that works is if we just all know that's the way it is, mm -hmm. right? And it also works if you're actually warriors in arms, brothers in arms, and sisters in arms, because we have each other's backs. And we go into a legislature, we go into a meeting, and things don't go as planned. It's okay, because I'm there with my buddies and people in the movement. And when the you know proverbial bullets are flying, not real bullets, but we got stuff coming at us from all directions, I don't worry about it, because you guys got my back, I got your back, it's all good. One of the things I say to our folks on our team that I think is really important they know is, I have your back, even if you screw up and you're wrong, right? I still got your back, because mm -hmm. we're in this together, so I think that's really important. I mean, do you think our founders had a plan? It was like, okay, one, two, three, take on the largest empire in America, go. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there, there's no way they had a sense of how that would turn out, but they were thoughtful, they were prayerful. Uh, and they had a set of, set of principles, principles that they shared, and it empowered them to do something way bigger than themselves. Okay, you're way younger than me, so I'm going to ask this question to you because it's for young people. And uh, it's, how do we stress the urgency of Article 5 to young people that have been indoctrinated? Oh, boy, here, here's some more questions. Good one on the top, by the way. Uh, to young people, I mean, I think, first of all, if, if you know a young person, do everything you can to reach out to them and, and give them real information because I do, I, I said Convention of States is my A number one organizationally and that's completely true. Issue wise, my A number one is education. Like we lose everything in education before we lose it in politics or we lose it in the media or we lose it in the social media or in businesses that are so social justice, wokeness and businesses are out of control. It is education in the home and in the schools that sets the tone for everything. I mean, Abraham Lincoln once said, the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation becomes the philosophy of government in the next. You wonder how people are seduced by socialism and listening to Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, it's because they didn't learn free market capitalism in school and they think stuff really is free. So I, I think, and it kind of answers the first question on your, on your, uh, on the next one, which, which I- Which is how many schools are teaching American history and how can we get that back into the schools? And I think, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a movement called Bring Your Bible to School Day. Did you see Love about that? that? Yep. On October 3rd, Drew Brees got in a bunch of heat for that, uh, which then I proudly wore my Drew Brees jersey, which is painful for a Vikings fan. Uh, they've done so many bad things to us. Uh, <laughs> That's real sacrifice. It is real sacrifice, yeah. Uh, but I, I, I think it's just we have to create our own schools. We have to call out government schools for what they are. 
We have to empower homeschoolers and co-ops and all the things that people do. Yep, absolutely. 100%. We have to stop being blindly, uh, having a blind allegiance to our alma maters, which all of us want to have. Like, listen, I cheer for football games and basketball games and all that, but if you actually step back and look at what your university or college, if you went to one, is doing, they're probably just indoctrinating the next generation. So why are we giving them money? And why are we going back and pretending like these are wonderful places? I'm waiting for the moment to give my degrees. I'm not kidding about this, actually. I'm waiting for the right moment to give my degrees back to Princeton and Harvard, which, I, which I'm going to do. Awesome. Uh, and I mean that. Because I'm grateful for the chance to go there. But when you look at what those schools are doing, they couldn't be more of a net negative for freedom-loving and God-fearing people in this country. They are poisoning the minds of the next generation of leaders. And then I'm supposed to write them a big old check? and go there for my alumni events and pretend like this is an association that I want. Uh, so we just have to be so mindful about, about these educational institutions. And then for young kids, I mean, part of it, uh, they're, they're looking, I mean, a lot, they look around at the dysfunction of politics and wonder why it doesn't, why it doesn't work at all. And I think in this, in this case, you kind of look at them and say they're all used to video games where there's sort of a, in, in Nintendo on Mario Brothers, it was up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right. A, B, select, start. I still remember the code, the cheat code that got me to the eighth board. This is kind of like a cheat code for what we're facing right now that our founders gave us to say, if you see these problems, guess what? We've been trying to fix them for decades, and you can ram your head against the wall, or you can go all in on something way bigger than yourself that will be of historical significance you can't even fathom. And maybe that'll wake them out to, to doing some research on it. Check out the videos at Convention of States. They do a great job explaining it. Yeah, so I want to add something to that. You know, I would say if we watch TV, if we pay attention to what's going on in mainstream media, it's a pretty dark picture out there with our kids. And there's recent polling said 54% of young people, millennials and younger, think socialism is a good thing. But here's the, the rest of that survey that didn't get really reported, all the crosstabs. This is crazy, but this is true. Two-thirds of the people that said socialism was a good thing said that socialism has something to do with social media. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy, I'm walking off stage. <laughs> okay, now I know that's funny, but it's actually also encouraging because they really don't know what socialism you is. You really are a silver lining guy. <laughs> no, and here's, but here's what they said. So they asked him, uh, do you think socialism leads to bigger government or smaller government? And they said, smaller government. And they said, do you think socialism leads to higher taxes or lower taxes? And they said, lower taxes. So, so look, they're very wrong, but here's, let's, let's look at the positive side of that. What it's saying is these young people, they want less government and they want lower taxes. They've been misled by an education system to tell them that socialism is going to give them those things. But what it tells me is that there's an audience ripe for reality. They understand, there are very few people in this country that if you say, would you like your taxes to be higher, say yes, yeah. right? They say no. Or if you say, do you like a bigger government? They say, I love bigger government. No, they, they don't like that idea inherently. They're self-governing people. That's just human nature. God put that in us, by the way. You can't remove it from yourself. You have free will. That's what God gave you. And so that's inside of all of us. And so they're just, they have a misimpression of what it means. So our job is to let them know. And I would say, this is really important. I'm old, right? I'm 57 years old. So it's hard for me to speak to real young people. I feel a lot younger. I know, but I'm old. Not old. <laughs> but here's the deal. So I'm going to try and speak in their language. Right? Now, I'm going to try and speak to what I remember it was like when I was a young kid way back in the 1800s. And... You know, just to give you an idea of where I come from and just kind of my attitude about life, 
Patty hates when I say this, so watch her cringe as I say it. When I was in law school, I had a blue mohawk. For real, okay? I'm a rebel. I did it, by the way, after we started dating, too. I was a lawyer. I was between jobs. And I said to Patty one day, hey, you know, I'm between jobs. What would you think if I got a mohawk? And she said, well, if it would make you happy. And I said, yes. Bad move, Patty. Way bad move. You signed up for that, Patty? <laughs> So I'm a rebel at heart. This is where I come from. And so what I want to do is I want to tell young people this. Look, we, my generation, we've ruined this for you. We spent money that belonged to you. We've squandered opportunity that belongs to you. You owe somewhere between sixty dollars and $108,000 in tax money now because of stuff that we spent it on, our generation spent it on. Do you like that? And they don't like that. It's not, they can't even imagine that amount of money, young people, right? At a very minimum, a couple, a young couple today getting married starts off owing somewhere around $60,000 a year in federal taxes to pay for stuff we've already spent. A year. Imagine that. Impossible, right? So they don't like that. So then what I tell them to do is get involved and kick the table over. It's not enough to just vote. We need to get engaged in the system. I had somebody say to me in D.C. once, Pete, well, if you play your cards right, you're going to have a seat at the table. And I said, mm, you don't want me there because I'm going to kick the table over, right? And that's what you should encourage young people to do is kick the table over. There's something that, thanks. You know, Pete, you, you've had the chance now, we both have to participate in a bunch of Republican politics. I have a very bad pet peeve about Republican politics and young people. This is what Republicans do to young people in politics. We love young people who dress like old people, and then we invite them to old people events to hang out in the back of the room and look like old people and be very quiet until they are old people, and then we'll let them do something. <laughs> right? Isn't that Republican politics? It's crazy. It's cra we can't do it that way. We need to invite them in and get them to work and hear their ideas. And they're young and they're invigorated and they understand the technology and they know how to communicate in ways we don't. In my organization, my general counsel, the guy that runs all the legal stuff and it's big and it's complicated and it's scary, he's 30. All right, I hired him out of Pepperdine Law School. He had not passed the bar. We bring young people in and if they have aptitude and attitude and they're willing to take on the responsibility, Good Lord, we got 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds running our military, right? If they can drive a tank and fly a fighter jet and handle hand grenades, I think they can help us out in politics. Well, and how, I, how old was Thomas Jefferson, the founder? 33? I mean, this country was founded by young men and women who stepped out. I mean, this is something that I think we, we baby our kids as if they're incapable, uh, except unless you're in the military. Uh, yeah. somewhere else. No more baby and the kids. You guys up for that? They're going to go home. They're going to beat their children. It's going to well, be our fault. I'm writing a book right now that comes out next year, which, which I, I think you folks will like. But after that one, I've already got planned Pete's Politically Incorrect Guide to Parenting. Uh, it's coming out. Seven kids. You must have something to say. Uh, so this one is for me, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip it to you because you had a kind of a little bit of an outside perspective. Can you give us an update on the recent Williamsburg meeting? You should answer that. Well, I, mean, I want, what was it like well, for you Well, first of all, it was amazing. Uh, it, was, it was, if not all 50 states, almost all 50 oh. states. Uh, you see the states that have passed it already and are motivated. You see the states that are this close looking for advice. You see the states that are just building uh, their foundation or rebuilding. Uh, and you, I, I mean, the energy in that room was unbelievable. I mean, it was, they thought I was there to motivate them and it was of course the exact opposite. You walk out of that believing that it's possible, knowing that there are patriots just like you across the country, 
and every state had a seat at the table in, in equal value, uh, including blue states like Minnesota and New Jersey that don't need to be blue forever. Where there are, you, know, you know your neighbors. You know how patriotic they are, how much they truly do love this country. And when, when it's brought to them and they understand the stakes and the stark nature of it, I think there's a lot more uh, of us than there are of the other side when, when it comes down to it, at least ready to get after it. Uh, so I was really motivated. Your, what was your big take? Yeah, so for me, the most, the most amazing thing about being there was being with people like you. And you know, I travel around, so I get little slices here and there. You've done this too. We go to Minnesota, go to the legislature, get a couple hundred people, show up, super exciting. To be in a room with patriots from all over the country and have all those perspectives from all 50 states, I, it's incomparable, literally. You guys should volunteer and you should be there next year. We're planning it right now. We have people out in the field booking the hotels and everything. We're going to do it again and again and again as long as it takes. But you should be there. So there's a certain feeling that's there. And the best way I can describe it, it sounds kind of corny, but it's family, right? Because you're in the fight together. You're, you're in a war together. You, you have a shared set of fundamental values, just like a family. And so when you meet people in that audience, it's incredible because you can walk up to anybody and you know they're kind of just like you, right? And so that creates friendships really fast. The bonds are really deep. And the main reason we held that event was because people like you asked us to. It wasn't, you know, I didn't sit around and think one day, hmm, I'm so smart, this would be a great idea. It's I traveled around the country and people said, more than anything, we want to meet each other. We want to meet people from other states. So to get there, to have that experience. And then the last thing I would say that I think is really important is about service. Right, so we're a political organization. You won't hear many political organizations or any really say this. What we're about is serving. We're a service organization. We serve God, we serve each other, we serve the movement, we serve the grassroots, and we serve our country. And you could feel that in the room throughout the whole event. Okay, I got a, a very specific question here, uh, and then I think we're gonna close it out. Uh, and this question is about term limits. And this person is asking, are state legislators aware of or motivated by the idea that term limits for the legislature and judiciary would create more opportunities for them? This is from Mark in Cinnamonson, New Jersey. And Mark, I would say this was my biggest mistake, or the thing that I thought that turned out not to be true in this movement. I thought that when we proposed term limits for Congress, state legislators would love this, because they would think, wow, there's going to be a bunch of turnover. They all aspire to something more. I thought they're going to think they can go to Washington, D.C., and they're going to love it. This is the hardest one for us. I got states all over the country where legislators will say, I love what you're doing, but the term limits thing, I just don't support that. And I'll say, it's for Congress, though. It's not you. I don't support that. I just, I can't, I hate term limits. And I ask them this question, okay, so when you're campaigning for election next year, you're okay campaigning on, I'm against term limits for Congress, right? <laughs> Pardon my evil laugh, but <laughs> they always turn really white when I ask them that question. And it's not a threat, it's just crazy. 85% of people are in favor of term limits for Congress. They don't want to say it. And so what I tell them is, and this is important because I always want you to know, no, it's difficult. It's really, it's, they don't like the idea. Here's what I tell them. If you're against that idea, that's okay. There are reasons to be against term limits. It empowers bureaucrats, it empowers the staffers. There's good reasons to oppose term limits if you oppose them. 
what we need to do is have this debate in an environment where it doesn't have political consequence for elected officials, right? Let's get to convention. Let's have this conversation nationally about whether term limits are good or bad. Most people think they're good. If you don't believe in them, then you should argue against them in that environment. And this is what I would close with on a, on a discussion, especially with a legislator, about term limits. 85% of Americans for the last 30 years are in favor of term limits. If you and I say people shouldn't be allowed to have the discussion, that's called tyranny. And the question is, are we statesmen and women or are we tyrants? And I think the answer is you are statesmen and women. So thank you guys for being here today. God all. bless you. Thank you all. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, one more time. Pete Hegseth, Mark Mackler. So ladies and gentlemen, these are some of the faces, not even all of the faces that make up the COS New Jersey team. They are the people I was talking about earlier. And it's because of them that all of you are here today. They worked incredibly hard to get you here and they did an amazing job setting up this theater and making it look beautiful. And I just want to salute them and thank them, and if you'll join me in giving them a round of applause. And then for, for Mark and Pete, we have um, our state videographer put together a great flyer of this event. And one of our volunteers said, you know what, let's make a poster out of this and give it to Mark and Pete, and let's all sign the poster so that this way they have something to remember us by. So thank you so much. I have something for you, and you're, you're not expecting this, so. <laughs> That's the reason you have that shocked look on your face right now. <laughs> but your team has conspired against you. So these things happen when you're a great leader. So uh, we just had our summit in Colonial Williamsburg and Jonathan had some family obligations so he was not able to attend that summit. But the team worked behind your back tirelessly and they brought one of your shirts to the summit and had all the speakers sign that shirt for you. And importantly, on the back of the shirt are the signatures of your entire team because they want you to know they've always got your back. These guys are awesome, aren't they? Well, everyone, that concludes our program. I'd like to thank you all for coming out today. I really appreciate it. Um, just so you know, we would like to invite you all over to have lunch with us next door at Zupko's Tavern. You may have been given a, a smaller menu when you first came in. They put that together for us today so that this way, you know, we can kind of make things move a little bit more smoothly. However, if you didn't see something on that menu that was appealing to you, the entire menu is available. Um, so please join us next door for some lunch. We really appreciate it. Thank you all for coming out today. God bless you. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.